Hi, I'm your guest host, Talia Baroncelli in Berlin, and you're listening to TheAnalysis.News. I'll be guest hosting a few episodes for The Analysis, and I'll tend to be focusing on EU migration issues, Iranian politics, as well as the contradictions of global capitalism. My political interests are shaped by my family history, as my mother and her family are Baha'is who escaped Iran during the Iranian Revolution, and my father's side are primarily working class, Italians and Serbians. Um, I grew up in Canada, but I've been living in Berlin for the past 12 years or so, and have been working at an NGO, working with refugees, primarily from Afghanistan, Syria, and Iran. I'm now doing a PhD in um, EU border practices and the security regime, as well as the surveillance of asylum seekers. And I'm currently working as a researcher at the University of Katz. That's enough about me. Please don't forget to donate by going to our website at theanalysis.news and by signing up to the mailing list. In a few seconds, I'll be joined by Afar Rad to speak about the ongoing protests in Iran. I'm joined now by Asat Rad. She is a historian and the research director of the National Iranian American Council and is the author of a recent book called The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. Thanks so much for joining us, Asat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So on September 13th, Masa Amini died in hospital after being beaten to death by the um, morality police, or at least allegedly being beaten in their custody. And since then, we've seen protests across Iran. We've also seen um, protests, not just in urban centers, but also in rural areas. And I wanted to speak to you about um, the sort of resentment on the part of the Iranian people towards the regime, as well as some of the socioeconomic uh, factors which have undergirded the protests so far. Yeah, of course. Well, so the first thing to, you know, when we talk about what happened specifically to Masa Amini, because I think there's so many layers of stories that are going on right now. And, and of course, it was ignited by this horrific event, by the killing of Masa Amini. Um, and the one thing that I keep wanting to emphasize, because I think you know, sometimes there are people, who, and, and I understand, you know, it's like, well, what eyewitnesses say that she was beaten in the morality police, the so-called morality police in the back of the van. Uh, Iranian news try, or media tries to release videos saying, look, she was walking around. The bottom line of it, regardless of whatever anybody comes up with, is she should never have been detained, right? She should never right. have been in the position where her, the positioning of her headscarf would would be a reason to detain this young woman um and clearly she i mean if she had not been detained if she had not been harassed by morality police she would be alive today so this is clearly the responsibility of not just the individuals who detained her but of a state that allows uh, that allows these types of draconian laws, that imposes these laws on its people, but also that allows violence against its civilians with impunity, right? A system that has no accountability for its officials um, when they carry out violence against their own people. And 
what we are seeing in protests is indicative of that. So I just wanted to sort of put that out at the very beginning to say, you know, these these cross narratives don't matter. She should never have been there. It is the responsibility of the state and the state has created a space in which violence is allowed. Could you explain the morality police a bit more? Because I think there obviously is a difference between the morality police and, um, for example, the Revolutionary Guard and who actually constitutes them. Well, I mean, the, so the, the Revolutionary Guard, the IRGC is part of the, the military apparatus of the state. It's one of, you know, there's a there's a sort of traditional military and then the IRGC has a totally different function. Um, but but those are military branches of the state. Then you have like the police, the policing of the state, uh, which also has different, you know, you have traffic police versus uh, Nidua and Tizami, which is more, you know, broad based, you, what the police do in any in any state. But the morality police, the Gashta Ershad, um, from from my experience and from what I've seen from other people, I mean, for the most part, they're there to enforce uh, the outer appearance, the, the dress code and the attire. And this is focused on women, even though there's also a dress code on men. Um, the dress code is obviously much, much more strict for women. Um, right. For instance, like men can't wear like shorts or I mean, clearly neither can women, but like there's my point is to say that the dress code goes beyond just women, but it is much stricter for women. And that's really who uh, is targeted and enforced by the morality police. So this is something that was established to especially, you know, in the early days of the in the early years of the revolution, when these laws were first imposed, I think everything was sort of followed more strictly. But then over time, I mean, people resisted this because they didn't want it. Right. The first protests against the hijab were the day after the hijab, the compulsory hijab was announced. So this is not new. This is not, you know, it's not like Iranian women suddenly woke up one day and thought, well, we want to have autonomy. They've wanted the autonomy the entire time. So over the years, then you have something like Gashta Ersha, the morality police, to enforce those laws as people themselves just in their everyday practices start to loosen the way that they wear it. Right. As as very um, simple acts of defiance. Right. And also under the current president, Ibrahim Raisi, I mean, he's an ultra conservative. So I think the morality police have been enforcing some of those laws much more diligently than they had been in the past, because I know Iran is still a bit different from places like Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan, where women have to wear like a full chador or like a complete long sort of face covering and they can show a bit of their hair. So I think there has been a bit of leniency in the past, but now it seems like they're really cracking down on on how women wear headscarves. Yeah, so it depends on who, you know, the, the political climate and the administration in power will impact how these laws are enforced, because the law, as it's written, um, is very strict, right? It's just the oval of your face, your hands, that's it. That's all that's supposed to be showing. That's That's the way that the law is written. But if there is leniency, that leniency comes again. I and I emphasize this because it's so important to understand that there's there's constant resistance coming from Iranian people. It doesn't have to be in the form of large scale protests. Always, again, they're every they're sort of everyday simple acts are are acts of defiance. And so the leniency comes from the fact that you just have millions of people who aren't doing it the way that you want to do it. And depending on who is in power, they will uh, you know sort of create an atmosphere that imposes that le- more or less strictly. And of course, Ebrahim Raisi is, like you said, is an ultra-conservative. Um, 
And it's not just this that we're seeing in terms of an increase in repression since his administration has come in power. Now, that doesn't mean there was no repression before his administration. There clearly was. But we're talking about scale and increase. And so just a few months ago, you saw uh, filmmakers being arrested, Jafar Pandohi being arrested. Um, you yeah, see... Yeah, I mean, there's just across the board, there is more pressure on and there's more silencing of dissent, any form of dissent. Uh, And that is happening while it happened before. It's simply happening more now. It's more strict. There's more imposition of the regulations. Um, And there's, you know, the way that Masa was handled in and of itself shows you the, the how why that climate is so important, why who is in power, the discourse they use, the environment they create is so important. And, you know, I, I tend to, especially for an audience that is Western, like make parallels because so we can understand it. If you look at the atmosphere, you know, a lot of people said things like, oh, when Trump became president, all the people who were racist came out. And I said, well, it's not it's not just that. It's also that he emboldening that discourse and using it you also create an atmosphere where people feel, where people might feel emboldened to do and act in certain ways. And so you have to consider that in the Iranian case as well. So while all of those things may have existed before, all of the laws may have existed before, this particular administration is imposing a larger broad-based crackdown on Iranian society. Right. And also looking at this particular administration, uh, one of your colleagues, Srita Parsi, recently wrote in an article that this regime is pretty much allergic to any sort of reform. So I wonder if you think that reform or whether reform can be enacted or achieved from within or if Iranians just have to try and bring about some sort of, I don't want to say regime change because that would assume that it would be an outside actor, but some sort of revolution or even a small change in the government. Is that possible? I think sometimes we also just get caught up in the semantics, right? Like, you know, a revolution would be the toppling, typically is described as like the toppling of a system. Historically, when we look at revolutions, um, it was the toppling of monarchies um, because that was like the way, you know, feudal systems was the way of governance. And Mm -hmm. then it was to introduce these ideas like constitutionalism, self-governance, um, that's like the classic sort of notion of, of revolutions that you see in things like the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Um, of course, that's not the only way that you can define it. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 was a revolution. It did topple the monarchy, but it didn't establish a democratic state and established the Islamic Republic, um, which is not only theocratic, right? So it's not only non-secular, like but um, the idea of Valéry that was imposed into the constitution also made it an authoritarian state by its very nature, by its very definition and the way that it was in the constitution. So, you know, can it be, can it be amended? Can the Iranian constitution be amended? It has, but not necessarily for a a good cause. For instance, in 1989, when, um, when there's the the only thus far in the history, in the post-revolution, there's been one transition of power from the Supreme leader from Khomeini to Khamenei. Um, I know their names sound familiar, but <laughs> sound the same, but they're different people. They're not the same person. <laughs> it's often, I mean, because oftentimes people use Khomeini. Everyone, oh, Khomeini said this. I'm like, Khomeini's been dead for a very long time. So this is a different guy. Um, but the constitution was amended in order because 
Khamenei did not have the, especially the, like the religious credentials to be able to take that mantle. Um, so the, it was amended, you know, and there was the, during the Khatami administration in the early 2000s, uh, he introduced twin bills to try and amend, uh, to give more power to the office of the president and reduce power of, say, like the Guardian Council. So there are these, this, this concept exists within it. But whether or not the system, and by the system, I mean those who wield the most power within it will actually allow it, um, is a different question. So what you're looking at in these protests is Iranians asking for fundamental change, right? It is, yes, first of all, even, even if the only thing they were asking for, which it isn't, but even if the only thing they were asking for was the freedom of their attire, right? Getting rid of the morality police and uh, the dress code, like the making the veil a choice. That arguably is revolutionary, right? That arguably is a fundamental change because it's such an important symbol within the foundation of that state, the control of women's bodies, just the control, that amount of control that it tries to wield over, over this lives of ordinary citizens. So that act in and of itself, I think you could describe in that way. Well, it would also be similar to the revolution because initially the revolution was, you know, primarily led by women who wanted to be able to wear hijab because they felt that they weren't able to wear the headscarf under the Shah's rule. So there are some parallels there with this revolutionary act of protesting what they can and cannot wear. Yeah, I mean, the pendulum swing is important to understand in the Iranian case. It wasn't, it was his father in like the 1930s that actually outlawed the Chador, that banned it, right? Like it was illegal. Uh, they actually stripped women of them at that time. But the last Shah, his son, um, it wasn't that it was banned because it wasn't. It wasn't that you couldn't wear the hijab. It's that um because of the the sort of nature of the society and the um the how can i say it you know the imposition of westernization to a certain extent right it wasn't that group of people if they were more conservative if they were more uh, religious minded if they wanted to wear this garb felt discriminated against right disenfranchised versus something being it's not illegal to do it but there are these the differences in the way that the society treats people within it. Maybe you wouldn't be, uh, maybe you'd have more difficulty getting a job if you were wearing it, for instance. And so it was used as a symbol. Right, or you might have been portrayed as being not as Western or educated in doing so. Right, this, for the same reasons we might, you know, I mean, those types of discriminations might exist now, right? If the person that's hiring you is Islamophobic and some if, if a woman is choosing to wear a headscarf even in the United States, that might cause discrimination discrimination against them because that's the, the sort of environment we live in. So it became a symbol of resistance because part of the way that like Iranian revolutionaries, not all of them, but certain segments of them uh, understood it was as a symbol of resistance. And it, it is seen that way in other contexts, in other historical contexts, in other countries as well, where, so that's why the core of it is choice, right? It's, um, you see actually in these protests right now, people who are coming in support of Iranian women include Iranian women who choose to don the chador, right? Like this is, they're wearing a chador. They, they are, you can clearly see their, their, their own personal point of view, but they support women's choice, right? So, cause it comes down to a question of choice and, and that's what they haven't been given for the last 43 years. Right. So maybe 
shifting our gaze slightly westward now and maybe we could speak about the the left in in Europe as well as in North America where you currently are because I've seen you know some voices on the left arguing that these protests can't possibly be organic if they're exclusively focusing on human rights or women's rights and that they somehow detract from the history of US intervention and repression and and western um yeah history of western coups in the region so I'm wondering how we could you know walk and chew gum at the same time and acknowledge the fact that these protests are organic and there is a groundswell of support for um, you know changing some things in Iran and that people are for suffering from the sanctions and, and from other um, Western you know political um, restrictions so maybe we could speak about that as well yeah of course I mean I've been uh attacked by some leftists not not everybody i don't want there was actually there's a lot of people that i know on the left who are very much in solidarity with the protests but i've also gotten attacks that you know i'm by uh, showing solidarity with the iranian women by posting about these protests that i am somehow supporting an imperialist takeover of iran and that is extraordinarily frustrating for so many reasons uh first of all because i'm very outspoken about my like views on uh, U.S. imperialism. That's that's one issue. But there are other issues. And so, you know, I can have sanctions devastated the Iranian economy, creating pressure on ordinary people from the middle to the working class. Yes, there's no doubt about that. Is the intention of sanctions as a policy very often to foment unrest and instability in countries? Yes. Did sanctions force women to wear a hijab? No. Did sanctions create the morality police? No. Did sanctions, you know, uh, create an atmosphere in Iran where those who wield power can use violence against their own citizens with impunity? No. Those are all the responsibility of Iranian officials. And so I think there's a problem on both sides when you try to undermine legitimate grievances, legitimate issues that affect human rights. And so on the other side, on the flip side, right? So I take issue with people on the left who make this argument. So I'm like, well, you're completely, you're just undermining their agency as if these people are not out there knowingly risking their lives for, for what? They're doing it for themselves. They're doing it for their country and their cause. They're doing it for their freedom and their future. So I, that's not solidarity, right? Like we should be able to show solidarity in every situation. And then on the flip side, you have appropriating these protests for for you know for the advancement of exactly what we're talking about which is you know people saying things like see sanctions were the best idea that's what we said we were right and it's to me the problem with that is well we use human rights language to talk about what's going on right now uh this is centered around human rights right the the right of any individual for their own autonomy for their own freedom women's rights um the right for expression the right to protest all of this is is framed in human rights language, but so is the language about sanctions. And that's the thing that's so frustrating is like, well, if you were for human rights, you can't selectively do that because human rights language also was used to frame why sanctions were problematic for why sanctions are when they're broad-based and unilateral, when they're nationwide, um, how it adversely impacts civilian populations collective punishment is against international law. Like there, 
there has to be some way of talking about these things with some level of consistency. And I think on both sides, um, there has been problematic takes. And that's why I've tried to emphasize that just, you know, listen to what Iranians are saying. Like Iranians are not talking about sanctions right now. So that's not that's not their current issue. Um, but we should very easily be able to get behind and have solidarity with people who are demanding their most basic rights. That it should not be a controversial take. Yeah. And I mean, if the West really cared so much about uh, human rights in Iran, then they wouldn't have imposed sanctions during the COVID-19 pandemic, which basically cut off so many necessary humanitarian supplies or medicine or, or other things to Iran. So there is a bit of a double standard there. Well, I mean, you have you have like a campaign, um, Israeli women standing with Iranian women. And while that is positive, I don't, you know, I don't want to say that I'm sure there are women in Israel, there are Israeli women who very genuinely stand with Iranian women and who may even stand with Palestinian women. But as it is, as like the function of a state that itself carries out human rights abuses, then uses this as a way to differentiate itself. That's what I'm saying is like, there's just so much also disingenuousness in the way uh, some of the support is coming in too. So it's like, you know, let's just... Let's just apply these things to everyone. Like Human rights are extremely important, but they're not only important in Iran. They are just as important in Iran as they are everywhere else. They're equally important in every, in every context, in every situation. Well, that's also probably one of the negative aspects of social media, where everyone's basically trying to virtue signal and put themselves out there, make themselves somehow part of whatever is going on to draw attention to themselves. So, yeah, you definitely yeah. see people basically posting about what's going on in Iran for their own personal gain or to, to gain media attention. I mean, you have U.S. politicians, you have U.S. politicians who are quite literally stripping women of their rights in the United States as we speak, uh, tweeting about women's rights in Iran. And I'm not comparing the two situations. Women in the U.S. have a great deal more autonomy and rights than they do in Iran. I'm not paralleling that concept, but it is still, you can imagine as an American woman listening to what is happening in this country uh, and listening to politicians who are actually actively seeking the policies that, I mean, we've just undone decades of women's rights in the U.S. It's still, it's not a small deal. It's still a very big deal, especially for the lives that it's going to impact in the U.S. It's a women's rights issue. It's a global issue. So, so it is frustrating to see this kind of yeah it's like almost like double speak it's like well you i agree with you here but then why don't you agree when it's our own population it's our own thing so yeah you see this sort of across the board people using this in in various ways to fit their to your point you know just to like get clicks or to get likes so to speak right well you're a historian so would you say that the current protests actually constitute a social movement or is it really not yet at that stage? Or is this something that's continuous and that can't really be characterized in that manner? I think you could characterize it in that manner because I actually don't think that it's, um, it might be, the initial protests might be a reaction to an event, but they are part of a very long history of protest movements, social movements, political movements in Iran um, that go, you know, I mean, if you look at, 
the hijab specifically, then you can go back all the way to 1979, the first International Women's Day, the first time women protested against it. If you're looking at women's rights, that goes back decades as well. The women's rights movement in Iran is is you know part of the reason why they finally got the right the vote to vote in the 1960s. Um, if you look at social and political movements in Iran, that goes back over a century, right? Like it goes back to the idea of constitutionalism at the core of it. I mean, when you say when we say that what they are protesting is the system at its core, because the the underlying thread in all of these protests and all of these movements is people is a is a country is a nation that wants a government that is representative of them in the sense that it is actually acting their will like they believe so the audacity for Iranians to believe that they should be independent from foreign powers, that they should have control over their resources, that their government should be a government that is governed by the people, that there should be a constitution that creates accountability for the people who are in power. All of these things have been part of this for, you know, like I said, over a century. And so I wouldn't think of this as just spontaneous thing that's fixated on one issue. And I think you can see those those threads and those roots throughout the history. Now, Defining this moment is hard to do because we're still in it. You know, it's yeah. it's it's hard to define what what will happen. It's hard to know what will happen. But I think it's fair to say that this is part of that long tradition. Um, and there's also a reason why the state reacts the way that it does. Why it acts so desperately, really, to to squash these protests um, is because they don't want that fundamental change. They want to maintain the status quo. They want to maintain their own survival. And that's not what the people want. And now more than ever, though, I think we're also seeing the level to which they're going to resist. It's not going to go away. Uh, if anybody thinks like this is just going to go away, like they're just going to squash the protests and that'll be over. Maybe in the short term, you'll see something like that. But that doesn't mean that the, a movement has died. That doesn't mean that this, and that's why you have protests throughout this history and throughout this period. So I, I definitely think, especially now when you hear things like uh, teachers boycotting, students boycotting, uh, labor movements getting involved, just acts of civil disobedience, right? Women going out and just not wearing their hijab. They're not protesting. They're not protesting. They're just walking down the street without a hijab. But that is an act of defiance. So that type of civil disobedience and, and these movements coalescing together uh, creates the notion of, of, a, of a social movement. And, you know, every movement doesn't have to culminate in a, an immediate grand change to be very important. And I think that's something important to emphasize too. Like if there isn't a revolution tomorrow in Iran, that doesn't mean that this was a failure, Like that's not how you define this. I mean, every act in itself is valuable and, and meaningful. Um, I was also Just changing wondering- the conversation. Just yeah. the fact that they're changing the conversation. Just not only that, but on a global scale, all of those things, all of those are already victories in, in my view. And how would you compare these protests to say the 2009 Green Movement, which protested the results of the election. And then in 2019, we had um, protests, uh, yeah, protesting exorbitant fuel prices. Like how would you characterize these protests compared to the recent ones which preceded it? Well, 2009 
uh, was quite different because it was tied to uh, like a political movement at the time, right? The, the It became the Green Movement. It was tied to this idea of Iranian reformists going back to Mohammad Khatami in the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, also, I mean, not not necessarily having a revolution, but wanting to reform the system in a fundamental way so that it, there's more power for Iranian people, um, like that the government actually works in their interest. Um, in 2009, there's a, a great book about the 2009 protest, basically the, everything that happened in 2009, the Green Movement, uh, called Contesting the Iranian Revolution by Puya Alimaran, who's a, who teaches at MIT. Um, in it, he talks about this like taboo that's broken in 2009 when initially when protesters go out in 2009 their first slogan is where is my vote and that's suggests this notion of accountability right they're they're trying to they're they're engaging in the political system and therefore they think the political system should be accountable to them but as those protests evolve you start hearing for the first time these chants of like death to the dictator right it goes directly to uh, the core of the system. And in the book, one of the things he argues is that it's that once that taboo is broken, that's why it's a watershed moment still. Once that taboo is broken, now immediately you hear those types of chants and slogans. Uh, and even, even in uh, 2000, even right now, um, while one of the core slogans that we've heard over and over again is women, life, freedom, which sort of sums up exactly what everything is about, you still also see the the death of the dictator slogans as well being used ubiquitous throughout the throughout the protests. So, in that sense, you can see parallels. The reason why 2019 is different is in November of 2019, those protests were sparked by uh, a hike in gas prices, and so there was it was less middle class Iranians involved. It was more um, working and poor Iranians who obviously were going to be very deeply impacted by such a extreme hike in gas prices. It was an economic thing. It was an economic issue that sparked it. In this case, you have a social issue that sparked it. And now the middle class is more involved. In 2019, you had less protests in Tehran. Now you see a lot of protests in Tehran, the capital city. Um, so all of these protests have their own unique qualities and, and features. But I think the other thing that's distinct in these protests is actually Iranians fighting back, right? Not just actually, and we've seen these videos, right? They're, they're in, incredible in certain ways to see that you actually see crowds surrounding like security forces or a police officer. And that is also, a, that to me is another taboo that's being broken. Um, and it's important to understand if we're going to look at the long term of where these protests will go and how they will evolve and what lengths people might be willing to go to uh, in order to see that change fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Well, despite Iran's isolation, it still is sort of part of a capitalist economic system. So the middle class has continued to be hollowed out. And so maybe more people are even you know, more impoverished than they used to be. Um, prior to the pandemic. And so maybe we'll see not just what used to be the middle classes, but, you know, all sorts of people protesting over the, over the coming weeks. I mean, that that point is 
when you when you look at there's a lot of commentary that says you know enough is enough or they have nothing to lose there's this idea of having nothing to lose and part of that does come from economic pressure as well so they're they're just feeling pressure from every side you have uh, the sanctions reimposed in 2018 which causes hyperinflation in the country uh hyperinflation unemployment the the their currency just taking a nosedive. I mean, the entire economy has just been in a state of decline, obviously affects people's daily lives. I mean, that's the number one thing that people always care about. Uh, rightfully so. Like you care about your livelihood before you care about anything else. But when you have nothing to lose, then, you know, you see the sort of the, the force with which protesters are coming out because they've gone through the pandemic, they've gone through sanctions. and on the inside, they've gone through uh, extensive crackdowns, protests being met with deadly force, uh, more restrictions, more uh, crackdown across Iranian civil society. So you can understand where the this level of frustration comes from and why it's targeted across the board. Right. People seem to be increasingly frustrated and the economic situation isn't helping. And I wonder if given these protests, if the U.S. will be more likely or less likely now to rejoin the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal? Well, so this is what the Biden administration has said, or what we've heard so far, um, that the, the, the deal will not in any way impede the administration's um, ability or will to condemn and hold accountable Iran for human rights abuses. Now, I would love it if the administration or the U.S. government in general would hold everybody accountable for human rights abuses. Well, clearly the U.S. doesn't care about human rights in Iran. And if they actually cared about human rights, they would follow through on their promise to hold MBS to account for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. In the case of Iran, this is what's been said. Um, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said, you know, look, we've uh, sanctioned the morality police. We've sanctioned specific actors um, and they will continue. You know, they've worked on and our organization actually pushed for this, has been pushing for this for years, by the way, um, an update to the general license uh, to GLD-1 so that our sanctions aren't impeding access to the Internet for Iranians. Right. Because on on the Iranian side authorities are shutting down the internet. So another action that we can take as the U.S. in support of protesters is to make sure that we are not inadvertently aiding their ability to block them from the internet, because some things are blocked, access is blocked from the U.S. side, from U.S. tech companies. So this is what the Biden admin is saying. But at the same time, they're saying, look, at the height of the Cold War, when you know, the Soviet Union was the, the evil empire and the greatest enemy of the United States. Uh, we still negotiated arms agreements, which makes sense, right? It makes sense to do so um, because if you look at how nuclear weapons affect the way that we calculate political decisions, you understand why it's so important that an authoritarian state that is already subduing its people in this manner would be even more dangerous if it made the political decision to acquire a nuclear weapon, mm -hmm. right? It's not just a matter of, and I say that the political decision, because thus far, like Iran is still a signatory to the NPT. 
Right. Even this administration still says they're open to returning to restoring the JCPOA under whatever circumstances they've come up with. But if that authoritative state then has a nuclear weapon, it's more dangerous not only for its own people, but for the the, the sort of consequences, the arms race that it can it can set off. Or regional arms race as well with Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Exactly. So so that's the line we've heard so far from the Biden administration, which is, you know, even if we are continuing negotiations, that doesn't change the human rights issue. Like we're still going to go after actors and hold accountable people who are human rights abusers. But on the flip side, even with the, the worst of the worst, this is this is their lines, even with the worst of the worst, we maintained arms agreements. And that's how the the JCPOA is being understood, at least from our understanding of how they're looking at it. So basically, there's still you know lines of communication that are open and di- di- diplomatic lines of communication, but they're maybe not as direct as under the Ob- Obama administration when there was actually direct talk. Well, they haven't been. They haven't been even before the protests because so. The Biden administration never returned to the deal. There's a lot of the way that it's talked about. Sometimes officials from the Biden admin will say things like, oh, Iran has to return to the deal. Iran is in the deal. The only country that's outside of the deal is the U.S. And so whereas in, you know, 2014 and 15, you had the U.S., you had, you know, there's pictures of Javad Zarif and uh, John Kerry, right, in the same room. They're talking to each other. Um while you had direct negotiations then, because the U.S. is not a party to the deal, uh, they are they are not part of the direct negotiations. So it's been indirect the entire time since I think the negotiations have now been going on for something like 16 months. Um, but basically since like April of uh, 2021, that's when the first round of negotiations sort of started. They haven't been direct. And obviously diplomacy works much better if you can actually have direct conversations but that hasn't that hasn't happened yet right well i mean it was the cornerstone of biden's presidential campaign to get the u.s to rejoin the jcpoa but do you think that he said those things in bad faith or that he maybe just sort of changed his mind along the way potentially to cozy up with saudi arabia and to increase oil production or what do you think happened there I mean, it's hard to it's hard to say what his what you know what this individual person's thinking was. I obviously don't know that, but but there is. I mean, looking at it at least from the outside, um, President Biden, when he was a candidate, and even before he was a candidate. I mean, the first time we hear Biden talking about uh, Trump's Iran policies back in two thousand and seventeen, right before mm-hmm. the U.S. even leaves the deal, he's already because. Because Trump was so outspoken about the fact that it was, you know, he hated the deal. He wanted to leave the deal. Um, Joe Biden was warning from 2017, this is a terrible decision. We shouldn't do it. In 2018, when the U.S. withdrew, he, you know, strongly criticized the Trump administration. And he did so on obviously many things, but specifically on the uh, Iran deal front, Biden, uh, Secretary of State Blinken, before he was Secretary of State, all, all of the Biden officials were extremely critical of this decision by the U.S. under the Trump admin. It would have theoretically made sense. I mean, and people who were proponents of diplomacy and supported Biden's uh, campaign uh, urged the Biden administration to take action earlier 
in there in his admin because Iran was going to have an election in June of 2021. And this was always the fear, right? The fear was, well, now right now you have a, a moderate, engagement-friendly uh, administration in Iran that really this was their like core accomplishment was the JCPOA in 2015. Mm -hmm. And so they were much more likely to uh, return return to compliance if you if the U.S. returned to the deal um, in a manner that was efficient than than what we've seen in preci precisely what happened with the Raisi administration, um, which though while it is while it has said that it wants to return to the return to compliance if all parties return to compliance and there's certain guarantees, um, that's really sort of the end of diplomacy between the West and and this admin and they've made it a point to say that they're, you know, they're not looking at the West. They're trying to um, engage with their neighbors in the region, uh, with China, with Russia. So it's a pivot away from the United States is what you're seeing with this admin. I think that part of what you have to consider for any U.S. politician, first of all, Joe Biden had a lot of stuff to deal with. We were still reeling from a pandemic. There's a lot of domestic issues in the U.S. that I know, you know, people sort of want to ignore, but there's a, there's a lot of concerns in terms of divisiveness and what's happening in the U.S. itself. So there's that. But also there's just this overriding anti-Iran attitude that exists within the political discourse, within popular culture, within the media, in the U.S. that paints the way we see policies. And it explains sometimes why our policies don't make sense. They actually don't make sense for us, right? It doesn't make sense in terms of U.S. national security interests, global security interests to have quit and left the deal or to have taken this long to simply return to the deal. But because there is so much anti-Iran um, attitude that exists within our politics, that's what they mean by a political cost. It's very interesting, right? They're like, oh, well, it would be a political cost for Biden to return to the deal. This, despite the fact that a bipartisan majority of Americans support a deal. Bipartisan. That means Trump supporters and Biden supporters. Uh, so it's interesting if you think, then what's political cost mean? That means political cost in D.C. That doesn't mean the U.S. populace. The U.S. populace supports because they do not want a war with Iran. The U.S. populace supports it. But there's a rhetorical, like, right, the rhetoric of D.C. will, will have a political cost, um, especially when you consider how Israel, which is a key U.S. ally and wields a fair amount of uh, influence, is against the deal as well, right? So so there's a lot of things I guess you could think about in, in terms of explaining it, but it is frustrating for people who supported his administration and thought that he would actually return to the deal uh, very early on, which he didn't do. Well, I've heard you say in the past, I think this was one of our previous conversations, that the American elite, especially in the GOP, is perhaps more dogmatic than the Iranian establishment when it comes to these issues. And they have mirror really images, right? Yeah. Like there's, we talk about hardliner, we call them hardliners in Iran, we call them hawks in the US. They're basically the same thing, right? Like mm -hmm. These are the people who never wanted a deal to begin with because they're more comfortable in this sort of adversarial status quo. Um, and, but then in neither situation does that reflect the will of the populace, at least at the time, right? At the time that the, the deal was, uh, reached, you know, we saw scenes of Iranians celebrating in the streets. So, 
Uh, and, you know, 70% of Iranians turned out in the 2017 election to to reelect the Rouhani administration. And I always say this, I'm like, so Ebrahim Raisi wins in 2021 with extremely low voter turnout for Iran. Um, 2017, 70% of voters turn out. 2021, I think it's something like 48% and maybe even less because a, a lot of the votes were just blank votes, right? That's a choice. That's a political, it's like a boycott of the vote almost. So right. Raisi is the one who ran against Rouhani in 2017 and lost by millions of votes. So, you know, the, the political climate in Iran has also changed over, over these years um, in part as a consequence of policies that didn't work, things that didn't work out in any way, didn't help, you know, nothing, nothing helped them. Their situation has gotten uh, continuously worse. Well, in the case of Raisi, do you think that people specifically didn't go out to vote because they felt completely disillusioned and they didn't think that he would actually want to work with the West and that the West wouldn't rejoin the deal you know, with Raisi at the helm? Or do you think there's something else that explains that? I think people didn't turn out to vote uh, for a combination of reasons. Um, feeling disaffected just in general with a, with a system that doesn't work, that doesn't help them, that doesn't serve them. Um, the fact that there were, I mean, the, the election process in Iran, um, it's, it's not like it's totally democratic. They're, the the candidates are always vetted um, by uh, an unelected body. And so it is undemocratic from the very beginning. But there's, there's you know, democratic elements to it, we should say. But in 2021, there was like ultra vetting. No one was allowed to run, you know? So it was almost as if they were appointing Raisi the president rather than actually having anything that would resemble um, a real election. So that's part of it too. I mean, it was the fact that they weren't really given choices. It was the fact that they were disaffected with the political system altogether. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can understand after everything that they've been through with with COVID, with sanctions, with protests being repressed, that they really didn't just didn't have a desire to go out and vote. But I always say that that's a political decision, too. They're not just agents. Uh, they're not just they don't just have agency when they do vote. They also have agency when they don't vote. Right. That in itself is a political act as well. I mean, that's what there were. I mean, there were millions of blank uh, ballots. So that's 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 an effort to show that you're not voting. It's not even I'm not just going to sit here. Just I'm going to make it. I'm going to take an action to show you that I'm not voting. Mm -hmm. Okay, Asal. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I think we're running out of time now, but it would be really great to have you on again to speak about your book, State of Resistance, next time. Maybe we can go into a bit more detail on post-revolutionary Iranian national identity and also what led up to the 1979 revolution. That so would be Asal, a historian and research director at the National Iranian American Council. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. See you next time.